NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Well, listeners, we can't make these stories up. Happy April. As you witness the trees budding, the peepers peeping, and the daffodils blooming, we're hoping you'll be on the lookout for something else, too. We're asking, how might you imagine or even reimagine the world as you know it? Today's show is a special edition of The Right Time, and we're pleased to bring back award-winning children's and young adult author Matt Dallavigna. Matt Dallavigna. I always never say it wrong. I'll let him say it himself. In special collaboration with Atticus Books, Hill Central KA, and the Harding High School presidents. We welcome you to our National Writing Project show and can't wait to introduce the one and only Ariel Johnson of Kinderbender to our teacher lead, as our teacher leader MC. We are also thrilled that you have joined us today. Brian, remember last spring when we interviewed Matt and he showed us pictures of Milo Imagines a World and it wasn't even published yet? And we said then, we got to have him back when Milo comes out into the world. And uh, we did. So thank you, Matt, for coming back to the right time. When you, thank um, you for having me. <laughs> and then, Brian, you said, hey, I talked to Matt, and he's got this great idea about promoting indie bookstores, celebrating schools, and helping us imagine new ways to get the best books into the hands of our young readers. We knew this was the time for the right time. Matt and yeah, Ariel. And so, yeah. So, so this is a Matt, Matt Delapino redux. It's the great <laughs> whatever at work again. Like I have like in my house, like copies and copies and boxes and boxes of this book because we've been using it in several schools in Connecticut. A month ago, I was contacted by the amazing Kathy Silver, an assistant principal. And she was thinking, she's like, Crandall, how do we restore hope and possibility with our teachers, especially now because it's been such a, a rough year in the pandemic. And just as she gave me that question, I go on, on Facebook and I see that Matt has posted the book trailer, the little video. And I, I just, the illustrations by Christian Robinson, I was like, I think this might be the answer. And so I reached out to Matt about like, I was like, hey, can you tell me of a publisher I can go to so I can order these books? Um, and, and he pushed the envelope a little bit further. And this is my first time doing a Matt De La Pena impersonation. He was like, hey, what have you ordered from a, a local bookstore, Crandall? So I did. <laughs> and I, I reached out to Atticus Books in New Haven, Connecticut. I tried to bring my Matt De La Pena West Coast chill, although he had some Brooklyn in him for a while, too. And um, right down the road from them was um, Hill Central K8, where we did work with Kwame Alexander several years ago. And, and they said, hey, if you're ordering that book, can you order enough for our teachers too. And so we contacted this Atticus Books to, uh, and, and they got books for the district. And it, it turns out that uh, New Haven Public Schools has bought the book for almost all the teachers in the elementary grades levels. And um, Atticus Bookstore was like, well, this was the greatest order we've ever put in. So it's awesome. Wow. That's yeah. So cool. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Ah, uh, we remember Hill Central School and we're so glad that they're involved in this project. Um, I've lost my way. What am I saying? <laughs> um, and we're glad they joined in. That's what I'm saying. But mostly my job now is to introduce Matt, author of many books for young readers, including the new Milo Imagines a World. 
Mats de la Pena is the New York Times bestselling Newbery medal-winning author of seven young adult novels, including Mexican White Boy, We Were Here, and Superman, Dawnbreaker, and six picture books, including Love and The Last Stop on Market Street, both of which are so beautiful. That was my <laughs> editorial <laughs> comment. Matt received his MFA in creative writing from San Diego U State University and his BA from the University of the Pacific where he attended school on a full basketball scholarship. In 2016, he was awarded the NCTE Intellectual Freedom Award. And in 2019, Matt was given an honorary doctorate from UOP. He recently returned to the West Coast where he's writing, teaching and finding absolute joy in parenthood. Welcome yeah. home, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> and then I laughed because when I called Tanya um, and I said, you know, what if we have Matt back on the show? And she said, Brian, we have to get Ariel Johnson to do this interview. She's tre a tremendous personality and she's just perfect. Um, besides, she loves working with Matt. And I promised if we ever invited him back to the show, she's the one we would call. And so then she sent me a link to Kinderbender and I became an Insta fan. And like her, as a follower of Disrupt Text, the squad from all over the United States, I love them. I was like, this Ariel and her bio are boom. So here we go. Ariel and Johnson, she, her, we, is a Reggio-inspired abolitionist teacher of third graders at Washington Elementary School, a school bursting with the energy of multiculturalism and multilingualism in downtown San Jose, California. There, she strives to build a democratic classroom where all adults, educators, and families believe in children, allow children to bring the fullness of their humanity into the space, and deliberately relinquish their power to the children. Ariel is dedicated to anti-racism and works every day of her life to disrupt oppressive systems and to promote a more just and equitable world wherein all folks can thrive. She's committed to the deep study of colonization and decolonization. So, Ariel... In the National Writing Project tradition, why not start us out with a writing prompt that listeners might explore a little after the show? Yes, thank you for that introduction. I'm happy to be here. So in this book, Milo Imagines the World, a little boy named Milo uses his big imagination as a lens through which he views the people around him on the subway, taking him on an adventure. Think about a time you have used your imagination to create your own adventure and write about it. That's such a great writing prompt, Ariel. And tonight we're gonna to try to do something with a little imagination and adventure ourselves. And we have asked some of the individuals from Connecticut to send some questions in. And we're gonna start, we're gonna start with a question from uh, Francis Hart from Atticus Books. Hi, this is Francis from Atticus Bookstore. My question is, your stories um, talk about people whose experiences aren't often touched on in children's literature, those dealing with poverty, incarceration, etc. What drives or inspires you to focus on these types of stories? How do you decide what sorts of experiences to highlight in your stories? Mm, I love that question. Um, so I will start by saying I don't set out to cover those things. Um, but they're what I'm most curious about. You know, these, these are the subjects I'm most curious about. These are the stories that are closest to me growing up. Um, but I also have to tell you about uh, an experience I had as a reader. I read The House on Mango Street. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I read the vignette, uh, Darius and the Clouds. And this was about, you know, a little, a little boy 
who maybe isn't the best student in school, kind of gets in trouble, but Sondra Cisneros, the author of The House on Mango Street, gave him the most poetic line, maybe in the whole book. And so I remember thinking as, as a young writer, if you're ever gonna read one of my books, I'm going to try to give poetry to community members and you know where I grew up or my cousins or my teammates that I played college basketball with. So that's sort of where it comes from. That's a great response. And um, the next question we have is from two literacy leaders from Hill Central Academy. And Tanya and I are gonna go now and here we go, here's Hi, the question. I'm Donna Del Vaso, the literacy coach at Hill Central School in New Haven, Connecticut. And I'm Nicole Brown, I'm the assistant principal at Hill Central School. And we have a question for Matt De La Pena. So Matt, when you created Milo, I'm sure that you envisioned him as many of the students that are before us right here in New Haven, Connecticut. Those students who are very underprivileged or living life with an incarcerated parent. I see the, this book as a healing, especially when Milo notices the perfect boy in line next to him and his entry to the prison. So can you walk us through the message in this, uh, this book serves to all kids, but particularly kids like we have here in New Haven? Yeah, so I love that question. And thank you for sharing the book with your community. Um, so the one thing I'll start by saying is I actually don't, I try actively not to go into a book with a message um, but I do come in with a point of view. Um, the audience, the, so the audience that I, I hope um, is introduced to this book most is, is sort of regular kids, you know, like everyday kids from every school, the, the kids with the 3.0, the kids that aren't the top in the class and aren't struggling the most. Um, I feel like I wanted to tell a universal story where the main character just so happens to have an incarcerated parent, but that's just one of the variables in his story, right? This book is also, you know, I, I wanna be clear, it's very much uh, honoring Christian, the illustrator, Christian Robinson, his story. Um, he grew up with an incarcerated mother. And when we started to talk about this book and, and how the story might, might uh, lay out, he, he told me that he would have felt called out if that was what the book was only about. And for me, I, I love this concept because for me, I have to, as a writer, I have to calibrate how loud, how quiet do I want some of the variables in the story to be? And so the journey is really about stereotypes. It's about self-definition. It's about figuring out how the world views you and how you view the world and then it just so happens that this boy ha has a mother who's incarcerated. Um, so yes, I hope your students see themselves, but I hope students that don't have this experience, you know, can see that the world is made up of so many different kinds of kids. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm gonna jump in a little bit and say that sure. teaching this from an academic standpoint has been so wonderful because we make so many assumptions about everybody in our world, even our, ourselves, and people make assumptions about us. And I think it's dangerous. And what's so beautiful about Milo is that he starts out sketching the way the world is, and then he challenges himself and says, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And then I was, I mean, the ending is the ending. And I was like, I didn't see it coming. And that's why it was even more beautiful. 
Mm. And it was like, huh. And of course, the last drawing in the book of how Milo, you know, it, it draws it out with his crayons. It's it's just, voila, the readers mm. will have to take that book. I appreciate that. One more, one more question from sure. the team in Connecticut. And this is a, a principal who um, has this question for you. Coming to you from the east side of Bridgeport, Connecticut, we welcome Matt Delapena to Warren Harding High School. What can administrators like us do to support the individuality of each student so they see themselves as better members of a larger community? Just want to tap into your expertise and importance to the conversation. Well, first of all, I have to start by saying one of my most memorable events of my life is I was invited to speak at a like a convention for for principals and I've never been so nervous in my life and when I got on the stage I'm telling you everybody was very serious and I was like I'm a dead man and <laughs> I told a little joke kind of like maybe five minutes in and probably about seven people out of like around 500 laughed and I was so thankful to those seven people so I want to I want to thank you, uh, maybe you would have been one of the seven people. I I'm actually very curious about Ariel's opinion about this um, because I don't view myself as an expert. Um, I'm a writer. I try to tell really, you know, important stories. I hope they are. I try to entertain. I try to be honest first and foremost. But when I think of, of schools and I think of students, I think it's just so important to share so many different stories. I think what traditionally had been happening is we got the idea as students, I know I did, that there's one prominent story and we're all sort of looking to that and many of us are not seeing ourselves in that story. So I think books are a chance for empathy if you don't identify with the main character, but I think they're, they're an opportunity to feel validation um, if you do identify with the character. So each kid should have both of those experiences um, in, in the schools. I used to say when I was growing up, you know, it wasn't until I read The House on Mango Street that I found a book that didn't feel like school. And so I, I hope to write books that don't feel like school, if that makes sense. Now that's great. And I'm, we're gonna hand it over to Ariel. It's all yours now, um, but I, I'm a huge uh, proponent of of administrators and secondary people using elementary school books in the classrooms because it's a great way to get individuals talking about really big issues in a quick way, but also in a deep way. So I couldn't I agree wish, more. I wish you two the best conversation. We're going off now and we'll be back on when the when you're done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so Matt, you've already kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, Milo Imagines the World, to me, reads like a narrative and a counter narrative wrapped into one tiny, perfect picture book package. I think Milo's both a typical kid with a vivid imagination and also a kid living in circumstances that would be judged as atypical and harshly so by the majority of U.S. educators. Why was it important to you and to Christian to tell the story with this juxtaposition? And in what ways do you think it matters for children and for their teachers? So I think when we set out to write uh, or to collaborate on, on Milo, this was a little bit of a different um, genesis story. So usually the, the writer 
writes the text and then it's sent to an illustrator and you don't even know who the illustrator is going to be. Well, Christian and I wanted to work together again. And we were on tour for our second book called Carmela Full of Wishes. And we sat down and we started exploring what did we want to do next? And it was in this conversation that Christian shared, you know, I've been thinking about sharing how I grew up with a mother who wasn't with me, you know, uh, for separation. And, you know, I gotta be honest, like Christian's coming into his own as a storyteller. And I felt really, really honored that that he trusted me with such an important part of his backstory. So when I took that information and, and got excited because what he couldn't know is that I've been fascinated by the criminal justice system um, throughout my whole career. Uh, first of all, I grew up in a place where, you know, this was not uncommon. My own favorite uncle was often in and out of jail. Um, and in my young adult novels, I had explored this many times. I actually worked in a group home uh, out of college. And I have a book called We Were Here that's literally about, you know, uh, residents in a group home. So this is territory that I've been interested in for a long time, especially in America. So, um, you know, you, you probably know this, but America, 4% of the population of the world, right? 20% of the imprisoned, the imprisoned population. So we're doing something wrong, right? But then if you look deeper than that, you know, I remember I was invited to a really uh, prestigious teen book festival in Minneapolis where, you know, they pay authors really good money. And I was invited, you know, and I got to go there. And the, the, the um, organizers, they said, can you come out a couple days early? And we were here, had just come out. So they said, maybe you could visit the prisons, you know, the male prison, the female prison and the juvenile hall system. So I said, of course, yeah, that sounds great. And then I think writers, we do not have answers to the big questions of the day, but we are drawn to those big questions. And I remember as an observer, not as an author, but just as somebody observing the world, I remember walking into to the juvenile hall system and noticing that the population was 95% black and brown. And then the next day I went to the teen book festival and it was 95% white. So you, you see this and you just go, whoa, like there, there's something so uncomfortable about these two events back to back. So you're drawn to this and you wanna, you wanna explore it. And then to tell you the truth, Ariel, there's, there's a saying above my computer that, that, that I kind of like sit with every time I sit down to write. And it says, do not write what you see, write what will be seen. And this is the first time I probably took that to heart in terms of what I was writing. So this book is really about what is the nature of, of seeing your world? Are you just going to look at the surface or are you gonna look deeper than the surface? Um, and as you know, I'm, you're in California, so I'm assuming you're teaching remotely, is that right? Yes, I am. So I think about these students, you know, and, and my daughter's, she's doing school remotely and, you know, we're being asked to be six feet away. And if you see people coming, you cross the street. 
So more than ever, we're leaning on very, very small bits of information to try to decide who somebody is. And now that our face is covered, so we're not even able to have the whole face to, to explore. But I think, I just hope students look at each other, look at the people that they encounter in the park, the adults walking um, through their neighborhood with generosity. And I really hope that that's what the book is trying to do um, at the end of the day is encourage you know, young people to look at the people in their lives and the people crossing through their lives with generosity instead of quick judgments. Absolutely, and I also think that um, the story itself, you know, we, we talk so much in our literacy community about diversity. I have a problem with that word. <laughs> I prefer the word inclusive text, but we talk so much about having diverse texts and so much of that, rightfully so, but so much of that has to do with things that are external. And um, I know you've written about this um, for Time Magazine, but, you know, we are not really focusing on the internal lives of children. And in part, I think that's because of adultism and our belief that kids are not internalizing, kids are not processing, kids are not having deep emotional, you know, experiences and lives about the things that are going on around them when they, they are. And if you create and open up that space for them to have that conversation, then um, it becomes very powerful. And the generosity that you speak of, you know, comes into the space. So I can say the first time that I read Milo Imagines the World to my class, um, I have two students whose mothers are incarcerated. Oh, wow. And they spoke up about it for the first time ever. Wow. One of the kids, um, I've been teaching her since she was in kindergarten. I knew this was her story, but it was the first time she opened up about it to all of the children. And, you know, the way that they received her and then also the little boy who's in the, in the same circumstances, who's also living with his grandmother, hmm. um, was just so incredibly powerful. And, you know, the little girl had no problem saying, oh, I could give that kid advice. You know, I could tell him I've been dealing with this my whole life, like wow. with a little tiny adult, right? Because she's living with this, she's sitting with this and she's processing it. And she, she experienced like the freedom of release, right? Because immediately the kids weren't like pitying her. They were just like, oh, I'm sorry that that's your situation. Do yeah. you want to talk about it, right? And she did. And she talked about it a lot. And the, the little boy talked about it a lot as well. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that you do in all of your picture books really, really well. That's so powerful is that the books themselves create space for children to have really difficult conversations. I could well, tell a story. That's so about cool, by the way. One of your books that like would like make it a, bring an adult to tears, just the conversations that we have while reading your text. So, so you just hit on something that I think is my philosophy on writing books for young people. And actually Christian and I have talked a lot about this in, in the recent year. Um, I think at the end of the day, sometimes we, we as creators, you know, everybody has an ego and we all do, right? In our own way. It's just part of being human. But I think sometimes we as writers, especially when we're newer writers, it's, it's tempting to feel like your book has answers. When, when it really doesn't, you know who has answers? 
are the readers of the book and they're, and they're formulating their own answers. And by the way, the answers are all different. So the, the coolest thing a book can do is be a vehicle for conversations. And by the way, those conversations, they could be between you and your students, so teacher, student. They could be between student and student. They can be between uh, child and parent. And they can also be between a child and his or herself, which I think that's something we don't, we don't talk about that much, but I think that's such an incredible uh, conversation that you sometimes have inside your own head. But I love that, that a couple of students voiced something in your class that was prompted by a book we put out into the world. I think those, those moments are, are magic for writers. You just, you go, oh my gosh, what you just did is you made this book a real thing. Whereas before you entered into the equation, it was just words and pictures and you made it into something greater than it could have been without your role in the equation. Um, so one of the things I try to do uh, as a writer and Christian, and this is what Christian and I have been talking about, he does the same thing with his art, is we try to leave space for the reader. One of my experiments with Milo was, and it, it, it was also partly because this was Christian's story. So I thought he should have the last word. So I was very excited to, to place uh, the final word of the book in his hands to see what he came up with. And the only like little parent parenthetical note I gave him was something simple, you know? Uh, and he just chose this moment of, of Milo and his sister um, and their mom just having ice cream on a Brooklyn stoop. And that is what he was so excited to share with his mom. And, and I love, you know, thinking about this girl in your class. I love when a child gets to be the expert. And I'm sure you're the kind of educator where you back off and allow her that empowerment. I remember uh, hearing from an educator who taught Mexican white boy um, for years and years in Arizona. And she was, she was a, a white teacher. And she, she said, you know, maybe the, the class was like split in thirds, <clears throat> you know, a third African-American, a third uh, white, a third Latinx. And she said, every semester I teach this book, inevitably, I read it out loud to, this, to the class, inevitably it will come to a Spanish slang word that's very specific to Southern California. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that word and I'll say, you know, I'm not sure what that means exactly. And somebody in the class, she said, usually it's, it's a boy from the back of the class who leans forward and says, oh, miss, that means this. And my favorite part of that equation is that now he's leaning forward. He's part of the conversation and maybe even more than part, maybe he's the head of that conversation in that moment. And that's such an empowering um, possibility. Absolutely. And the other thing that you just made me think of, like in terms of the little girl that I'm talking about, she doesn't, um, she's had, she struggled to learn to read and she really doesn't perceive herself as a reader. 
And so when she encounters texts like that, that she can engage with so deeply and that's so, you know, powerful and meaningful for her, like in those moments, she's like, I'm a reader. And I think that that is so important that we um, search and search and search until we find, you know, a huge stack of those texts that help students who don't perceive themselves as readers or as writers, you know, for mentor texts, um, to, to be able to experience that and feel that way because doing that over and over again, realizing that other people have your story. You should have seen her face. Oh. I played the Today Show interview with Christian her face when he said, you know, they said, oh, my mother was incarcerated and I lived with my grandmother. And she was like, wow. <laughs> you know, on the screen, she's. And you know what that yeah. makes me think of is think about the representation she's seen of that reality. It's probably mostly on cops or it's on the news for a negative thing, somebody in handcuffs. So, you know, you know, like it or not, this kind of goes against what I was saying about the, the author ego, but like it or not, when something is published in a book that comes from a publishing company and it's packaged nicely and it ends up in your school, it seems important. And so now there's a represent, representation of her story that is, it's not validating, but it's just, it's normalized, right? So it's, exactly. yeah, it's not celebrated, but it's normalized. And I think that's an empowering, empowering thing right and it also opened up the conversation about okay well what kinds of people are incarcerated what about redemption you know we like we venerate martin luther king jr yes. how many times you know how many times did he go to jail how many years decades did Ma nelson mandela who we venerate spend in prison and so you know, to have that powerful conversation about incarceration and unjust laws and people like redemption being a possibility for people who yes. break laws that are just um, with eight and nine-year-olds. Like the book opened up that conversation for us and made it um, something that they could digest. If I had just started talking about that, that would have exactly, exactly. <laughs> wouldn't have so gone true. over well. It's so true. Yeah. It's like, you know, we are, we are, humans are all about narrative. Like every, every great story has, has the possibility of moving us. You know, like I think of, you know, the Bible, news stories, QAnon, all of these are stories that become powerful for whatever reason, but it's narrative at the core of all of these powerful ideas, you know? Yeah. I can't believe yes. I just threw QAnon in there. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it. Um, so, <laughs> um, so Matt, early on in the pandemic, I had the joy of you visiting my classroom and talking with my students. And when you were talking to them, you talked about how freedom is a motif in your picture books. Yes. And so like for the past two school years, I've really been thinking deeply alongside the children because of the children about freedom and the way that freedom and imagination intersect and like what happens at this intersection. So I think, you know, when Milo imagines the world, it's like a super powerful illustration of that idea of that concept. Can you talk to us about how freedom shows up in the book and what role you think imagination plays in Milo's freedom? Yes. And um, also when you were creating the book, did you have any expectations that the story could also set young readers free? Ooh, 
like my girl I was just talking about. So, so you, you have brought, so I remember visiting your class and I remember now talking about this idea of freedom and I, I've done it sub subversively in all the books, you know, I have the word freedom, freedom Boulevard, you know, he felt free in last stop on market street. So there's, there's something I'm exploring there and partly it's from how I grew up and what I mean is my dad, who was first generation and, and really didn't believe in the American dream and, and actually didn't believe in much, you know, but actively had a problem with America because of this idea of you can be anything. And he knew that that wasn't quite true the way it was presented. So that was like what I heard growing up. And he would, he would even say this, this isn't a free country. It is for some people, but this, I, this freedom is different depending on who you are and where you live. So I grew up with that. And this is a, a father who didn't graduate high school, right? And this, he's thinking about these big things. But you, you got to something in the book that I'm so excited to, sh to kind of talk about. Um, you know where the wild things are. One of the things I... I love about that book is, is that it's exploring child psychology. And a lot of it isn't, it's not um, overt, it, but it's, you know, the Maxi, he, he goes on this little journey and he tries on adult sensibility. He's, he says, I'll send you to bed without supper. Dead Bird, um, which Christian did an amazing job uh, re-illustrating, you know, these kids are trying on the ceremony of adulthood by singing for this dead bird after they bury it. I'm so fascinated by child psychology. So in doing Milo, I really wanted to think strongly and, and very pointedly about what Milo was drawing because that's his imagination, right? That's his psychology working through things. So most readers would never see this, but in all of his vignettes, he's thinking, you know, unconsciously about emancipation. So when he goes, when when the, the whiskered man goes to his fifth floor walk up, you know, and it's kind of, it's in shambles. Well, there's birds in a cage and somehow in the end of this vignette, Milo imagines the bird, bird cage falling open and the birds flying free above the city. And then we have the, uh, you know, the married couple who go up in a hot air balloon that they, they get to go beyond the walls of the city. So there's always this idea of emancipation. But then there's this one moment with, with the fancy kid, with the, the suit. And this is similar territory. And I've been thinking a lot about this. Some people are locked up so that we feel safe quote unquote, right? That's like sort of the concept. Well, some people lock themselves away to feel safe in their rich homes or their gated communities. And so he imagines, you know, a drawbridge with this wealthy kid that has to come down so he can go in and then it goes back up. So they're safe from Milo, you know? So I was thinking a lot about that. And then of course we have the vignette where he imagines the dancers and after they're done dancing, what if, you know, the store clerk is following them just to make sure they don't do anything wrong. And he connects that back to his mom, of course, because they're female. 
but he also connects it back to himself. And sadly, uh, this breaks my heart. This is when Milo puts away his pad because he, he's got to this point and he scratches out that picture and puts it away. And that that's what breaks my heart. Um, and I just, I don't know what it means, but every time I get to that part of the book, it, it, it hurts me because I remember that and I just see that so many places, you know? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I think, um, you know, my children are black and brown. Those are the, you know, the students that I teach. And so they, those are some of the things that they see right away. Like they automatically can relate to that. And again, seeing that, um, that, um, you know, we're told that these microaggressions aren't real and they aren't totally. true. And you start to internalize that, you know, that you're paranoid about racism and all of that. Kids start to internalize that at a very, very young age. And so, again, to see that validated within um, a text that they're reading, I think is really, really powerful. Um, so kind of in that same vein, um, I recently curated some text sets to facilitate anti-bias, anti-racist teaching in kindergarten through second grade classrooms um, for an article that I was writing for NCTE. And so I included Milo Imagines the World oh, in a text set that was intended to honor all of humanity and our many ways of being while also challenging children to interrogate their stereotypes and own implicit biases. Um, while writing the book, did you hope or imagine that teachers might use it for this purpose? And um, what other hopes do you have for how teachers might use the book to influence children? So that that's like my dream. And, and um, you know, it goes back to that, that saying, um, do not write what you see, write what will be seen. Well, I think teachers can, can think that way too, right? So like the students before you are the future and you can help sort of wake up the future and, and sort of challenge the future to be better in, in many ways. So I hope that that happens. Um, I think Milo's doing that too through the book. Uh, what is his final picture? It's him and his mom and his sister together again. So that, you know, it sort of gets past that forced separation part. But I think the biggest moment that, that I, I think a lot about is Milo, so every book, I don't think books solve the problem of the character, right? You just see a tiny step in a direction. Last stop on Market Street, the character, he tries on the way his grandmother sees the world at the end of the book. He tries it on. That doesn't mean next week he's not going to complain about going to the soup kitchen again. And that doesn't mean he doesn't want to ride bikes after church. But there's like a little tiny movement in a direction. And I, I think that's realism to me, like books that solve problems for characters and they have the epiphany and it's all good now. I don't think they're true. So for Milo, he's beginning to see the biases in, in, around him. He's beginning to uncover something or un unpack something without the, the language of pedagogy, right? He's just doing it as a kid. Um, so I think about this one moment where, my, well, when Milo does scratch out the picture and puts it away and looks in the mirror and challenges himself, what do people see about my face? You know, like, 
So now he's trying to think like, whoa, like what I'm doing right here is I'm looking at people and making assumptions and I'm often leaning on stereotypes. Well, what do people see when they look at my face? And then do they see the simple things like reciting the volcano poem, having my mom read me a book, eating dinner with my aunt. So I think it's, it's about, uh, hopefully the book is a balancing act of, of who you really are compared to how others see you, but also challenging the lazy nature of stereotypes, which is what he does, of course, when the boy ends up in the same line and he, he rethinks all the pictures. So I hope that educators can use that concept with their own readers. Um, it's funny because we've, you know, the book has only been out, you know, I think a month and a half or something, but we've already interacted with a lot of schools and so many kids say at the end of it, what did his mom do? And, you know, at first I tried to answer it. And then I realized, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm trying too hard, you know? And then I started to realize, well, what my answer really is, this book isn't about that. This book is about Milo's journey. It's about the fact that Milo is sentenced to, but it's also about Milo questioning his own way of looking at the world. So, you know, I hope that's what teachers focus on instead of what did the mom do? It's just gorgeous. <laughs> I, you just reminded me uh, last stop on Market Street came out when this group of kids I have were in kindergarten. And it was literally the very last day of kindergarten that I read oh, the wow. book. To them. And we got to the end and I closed it. We had a just incredible conversation. I presented about it lots of times, actually. But we got to the end, read the last line. I closed the book and I said, gosh, guys, these were six-year-olds. What is this book really all about? And one of my girls, who is wise beyond her year still, she said, it's about life, Miss J. Mm. Everything is beautiful, even if you don't have things. That's life. Wow. This is a wow. six-year-old. <laughs> yeah, and it was just so incredibly powerful. And I just feel like that's what all of your picture books are about. I mean, all of your books, I'm sure, but I'm most familiar because I'm an elementary teacher with sure. your picture books. But that's what they're, you know, that's what they're all about. They're about life in ways that young children can um receive both receive the stories and find themselves in the stories and um, process the stories and conversations and through their writing and also like they began to think about their own lives you know in their own experiences and process those um as they are reading your books so um i feel like you read the, write the kind of picture books that like have so much depth that teachers and children can like read them over and over and over again and each time we can teach a new lesson or gain a new insight and um i think i told you this in an email but i just recently reread love to hmm. my students um for like the umpteenth time and that too came out when they were in kindergarten and as we experienced a collective class meltdown um, after one of my students shared a story about her family member who recently committed suicide mm. and um, the children, they're still, you know, like we said, they're still online and um, they were bawling, you know, about the story that this little girl told, but they went from bawling to completely comforted and okay. Mm. Like the minute I started reading, 
Um, Because it's like a security blanket, right? Like we're having a rough moment and reading is a thing that can lift us up and comfort us um, when we're having a difficult time and writing is that same thing to us. And so love has become one of those books in our class that, that, you know, is just one of our go-tos when we're having a really hard time. So um, we talked about, you know, every, every time we like um, reread the book, somebody sees something different or wants to talk about something different. And so I guess my next question for you is like, is this a deliberate choice on your part that like every time mm-hmm. <laughs> you reread your books, like, are you intentionally writing books with seemingly infinite nooks and crannies that children can crawl into and explore and rest in if they need to? And if so, like, is there a magic way that you're accomplishing this every single okay, time? You know, this is, this is a cool question because I like the way you described like a story that that works for you is about life. And I know you were you were paraphrasing a student. Um, I love that description because so my theory is that the more specific you are and the more tiny you are, the more universal the story can be. So, you know, I try to tell very, very simple stories. And in that simplicity, if I'm as specific as possible, I think there's a chance for the story to be more universal. So have you read Each Kindness by Jackie Woodson? Yes. Yeah. So that is one of my favorite picture books of all time. And my daughter recently read it. And, you know, she had one of those those reactions that you're talking about with your students. She got to the end and she said, wow, I have to think about this for a while. And I was like, well, what are you, what are you thinking? And she goes, so many of the books that I've read are like, it's almost like a formula, dad. It's like something happens and then it's okay at the end or good at the end. And I almost expect that. And she said, and this book didn't do that. And I was like, oh my God, like that's what a great story can do. The way I describe it is, a great ending is both surprising and inevitable. So like, we know this is coming, but it's done in an interesting or unsuspecting way. Um, So yeah, I think I would just say, I try to be as honest as I can in picture books. I try to be as specific as I can. I learned a lot in rewriting Last Stop because I probably wrote that book 60, 70 times, and I was trying at the end to have this bigger ending, you know? I tried probably like 50 different big endings, you know? And then I was like, you know what? These all don't feel true. So I went back to one of the earlier endings where he just says, I'm glad we came. And I just left it at that. And I was like, you know, it's probably not the best ending, but it's the best I can do. And what you end up realizing is you don't need the big explosion at the end to have an impact, you know what I mean? So I just think simple can be beautiful. And each kindness has taught me that. Alma uh, by Juana Martinez, like that book teaches me that. So I try to I try to learn from other great storytellers too. Like how are they keeping it simple and making it so big? Right. I mean, there's simplicity in the stories, but I think 
the language is not simple and it's so beautiful and so incredibly powerful. And um, I um, like put fresh flowers on my kids' tables every week when we're at school. And um, one afternoon the janitor came in to vacuum and she's like, I just love how you always have these fresh flowers on the table in your classroom. It's like you think the children are worthy of beauty or something. Oh, I love that. Right. And oh I feel God. like that's how you, that's how you write, right? Like you are telling children who have incarcerated parents who ride the bus, whose parents don't have their papers fixed. You're telling these children who feel so ostracized and isolated possibly in their communities that you are worthy of beauty. I'm not going to give you simplicity. I'm not going like you know, simplicity as in, I don't think you can understand this sure, unless I make sure. it simple. I'm going to give you um, this beautiful language and I'm going to talk about your circumstances in an incredibly poetic and beautiful way so that, um, so that you leave touched and you re leave realizing that um, your story is beautiful, right? Um, I love I really that. I love like, that kick like this anger kick lately like just furious about like like I was just watching American Idol like mindless television the other yeah. day like you know what I'm so sick of this poverty porn right like this this oh, idea yeah. that, like oh unless you unless we lift you up and get you out of these circumstances you know and put mm. you over mm. here in this place that's completely different and foreign to you and who you are unless we do that for you then you haven't been successful and you haven't accomplished anything in life and uh, you know that's a lie right that's an oh absolute you, you, lie. you are hitting something that's so true um, about what I what I'm trying to attempt to do is avoid that poverty porn thing. Um, I do try to to provide moments of grace and dignity that are taking place in those communities, but not. It's not for a voyeuristic thing. It's more because that's the truth. Um, yes. When I was writing my very first novel, Ball Don't Lie, I said, you know what? Every I was thinking in my head every sports story that's about a kid like the main character it always tells the story of a of the one in a thousand who makes it right it's always that story and my dream was this novel is going to be about one of the 999 who don't make it but his his story is still valid and it's still beautiful and then when you get to the language oh my gosh like the one thing i do take massive pride in is language because I think when you write a picture book you have to get the story right and then you have to get the music right and the music part is so important to me I'll tell you a very dramatic moment in my career it, it involved last stop on market street um, I wrote the manuscript over and over and over and to the point where every syllable felt set you know like it was set in concrete and then I went to the publisher and my editor who was amazing she had a couple notes and one of her notes was, you know, in the dream moment where CJ's on the bus and he's listening to music and closing his eyes, you, you repeat the word sound. She goes, just take one of those out. And I was like, my heart was pounding because I was like, oh no, oh no, what am I gonna say here? Cause I know I'm not gonna say something smart, but I ended up saying, 
probably the most dramatic thing ever. I said, yeah, I could take that out. But if I do, will you promise me you won't put my name on the book? And she was like, oh my God, why? What's going on? And I said, the whole book hinges on that second sound. So I'll, I'll recite it to you with it and without it. And you can hear the difference. And CJ's chest grew full and he was lost in the sound. And the sound gave him the feeling of magic. If I take that sound out, it becomes CJ's chest grew full and he was lost in the sound and it gave him the feeling of magic. The whole book crumbles it, like a house of cards without a, a repetition. And you know, I am being dramatic and I know I am, but that's how much pride I take in every syllable. I have all my books memorized, not because I set out to memorize them, but because I've worked on the language so much, I've accidentally committed it to memory. And so thank you for pointing that out because I think young people deserve poetry and I hope to give it to them. So, um, Matt, the first time I heard you speak, which was many, many years ago, was at Teachers College mm -hmm. and um, you left me in a puddle <laughs> um, when you were telling the story of finishing the color purple in a hotel bathroom on a basketball trip and how falling in love with books galvanized the trajectory of your like entire family's individual and collective stories. Um, it was a testament to the power of stories to transform us. And I'm just wondering now that you've built a family of your own with two of the cutest children ever, mm -hmm. um, what role do stories and literacy in general play in your family? And what recommendations do you have for those of us who are raising and teaching children and we want them to learn to love reading and writing? I love that question because I think over the past year, I'm a writer and I'm a dad, but this past year I've been mostly a dad because I made a decision and it involved, it involved some real self-loathing on my part that I wasn't getting work done, you know, cause I, I've always prided myself on my work ethic and, you know, working every day to, to try to make a book, a new book. Um, and when I wasn't able to do that, through the pandemic because I have two young kids and my wife works too. Mm -hmm. And I value my daughter's education and my, my son's development. So I said, you know what, why am I so depressed? Like, why am I beating myself up? And then I just realized I had to say, I think I'm a dad first this year until the pandemic's over. So that was actually a freeing thing. Um, I still feel very guilty that I'm not writing at the pace that I have been for the past 15 years. But it's so fun because I get to help my daughter learn to read. And I get to like really help my son learn to be a young person. So in terms of this past year, I watched my daughter go from doing flashcards with me, sounding out cat like and getting cat and feeling like she did something. Now she's reading middle grade series by herself and she's so proud. And today we got Amanda Gorman's um, inauguration speech in book form. She proceeded to read it to us out loud and we were just blown away at how far she's come. And it was like such an empowering moment because my mom or my, my mom, my wife who you know has to mother me at some, at some points in our life um, 
she's actually working with Amanda Gorman. Uh, so it's kind of like we take pride in what this young poet is doing for us, our country. But um, so what do, what do I think about literacy? Having watched my daughter become a reader, the most important thing is I try to always let her choose what she wants to read. I love each kindness, but if she doesn't turn to each kindness one night and she turns to a princess book, I, I let her own it and I show, try to show as much excitement for the princess book as I would each kindness. If she chooses what she's gonna read next and it's a Disney sort of tie-in book written by no actual author, I, we lean in and we talk about what's going on in that story. So I wanna go where she wants to go. That's the most important thing. And I try to do the same thing for my son who I'll be honest, at the very beginning of when we moved to California, he didn't like books. He, he actually pushed them away. And I was like, okay, you know, this is how I was. Maybe he's, he's got my bad gene, um, but he's really fallen in love with books over the past year. And I think, you know, I, I try to really honor the fact that he wants to read the same book. Uh, his favorite book right now is called Pizza Day. And he read, he wants to read it. I'm, I'm talking a hundred straight times. And I go, you know what? This is what he wants to do. Let's read it again. And I try to be excited, you know? Um, so right. I think that's a big deal. <laughs> Follow your child. And don't try to rush the, through the text. You know, we're tired as adults. And, you know, you're not just reading the words of a picture book, but you're reading the illustrations. And there are some incredible visual storytellers. And young people sometimes are focused on the visual story. And you try to turn the page and they slap it back down because they're not done with the picture. And so I try to value that and try to slow down. I think it's better to read one book for a long amount of time than to read five books before bed. So I think that's another thing I would say. And then like you do with your students, let them guide the conversation. Sometimes it's gonna be about a silly beanbag in one of the pictures and how he, he wants a beanbag and he would love to sit in a beanbag. And I'm like, okay, you know, let's talk about the beanbag. And then sometimes your daughter will turn to you and say, wow, like I feel kind of sad at the end of each kindness and, and wanna talk about the deeper stuff. So I think there's a time and a place for every conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> Wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think um, everything that you said is something that can be embraced by teachers as well. You know, we need to follow children in our classrooms. Um, I think sometimes standards, standardized tests, you know, all of these things, these um, impositions on teachers and on children that are allegedly um, supposed to make outcomes more equitable and mm. all of that. Mm, it's a it's snake oil. But anyway, um, you know, following children is the best way to get them to where they need to go, right? They know where they need to go. We think we know so much more about what children need and where they need to go and how they need to get there, you know, and all of those sorts of things. And I think when you, you know, when you surround children with beautiful language, right? Um, when you surround children with like depth of thought, um, 
Vygotsky, right, says um, children go into the intellectual lives that surround them. And so if we have this, if we believe in children and we have this belief that like they are these tiny intellectual beings, right, then they can find their way. We just, um, not too long ago, we read Manana Land by Pam Munoz Ryan, which is oh, just an absolutely gorgeous book. If you haven't read it with Luna yet, it's a beautiful book. And, um, you know, at the beginning of the book, it's, they're just like, what's happening? What's going on? I don't get it. You know, that yeah. whole, like, we're into a new chapter book and everything's confusing in the exposition because yep. we, you know, and so um, I just let, like, we struggled together with it, right? I just embrace, taught them to embrace the struggle because they need to be able to do that as independent readers. Can I, can I, um, can I share something with you? Like, you just made me think of probably the most important development for me as a reader. I used to read the first 10 pages of a book, couldn't get into it, felt uncomfortable, and I would toss the book and say, I, just, I tried, but I couldn't do it. Savvy readers understand that even though you're a savvy reader, that discomfort is part of the process. And some of the best books you will ever read start off feeling uncomfortable, right? Yes, absolutely. We just started a new chapter book um, today in my class, Front Desk. We just started Front Desk. and um, I read that with my daughter. We talked about, right? Like, we have to anticipate struggle. We have to anticipate confusion. And so um, one of the most powerful metaphors that's come up all year long, like two little girls in a book club talking about me and Yana Land, they said, you know what? I think that this book is like a puzzle and we have all the pieces in all of the different chapters, but we have to put it together ourselves. Mm. But we like, I but like, that. we don't have the picture, right? Like usually on a puzzle, you have the box and you have the picture and you can, and they're like, we're trying to put together a puzzle without Ooh, the like picture. That. That's cool. I know. And that's they're like eight and, nine, they're eight and nine years old. And that's the metaphor that they came up with. Wow. And, you know, like allegedly, like one of the little girls was an intervention last year and allegedly struggled with reading and I think she's pretty darn, you know, yeah. I mean, I, she's actually been dismissed from intervention since then, but you know, we, we put all these labels, all these negative labels on children and we put all of these expectations for, for growth at a certain time, you know, in a certain way on children. And really we need to sidle up to children like that parent, you know, um, sitting next to them on the couch, reading, reading a book and, yep. you know, going out at the way that, you know, that we would in our personal lives. But I think we get so bombarded with, right, all of these um, lies that we have to do it this way in order for children to be successful and just creates all of these issues. Well, so you know, I just have one. Oh, go ahead. Oh, one real quick thing. Sometimes like I think about there's more to reading books than just reading books. So, so when I think about the process, of course, if you're sitting down with your child at night and you're reading a book to him or her, you're reading the book and you're sharing the story, but you're also having this very intimate, you know, moment with your child. If you're a teacher and you're sharing a book with your students, you're like, I love the way you described the discomfort. You're, you're sitting in it together, experiencing it together. That's life, right? One of my favorite stories that's ever happened to me involving books. I have this, this ritual when we get to visit kids in real life, you know, and it's not just online. Um, every time I read a book uh, to, to a class, I give the book out to somebody. And I always say, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, don't raise your hand. I already know who I'm gonna give it to. And usually it's like in my head, like, oh, this kid, 
seems like they need the book or this kid looks like my daughter with her glasses or this kid reminds me of me when I was little. So I always give the book to somebody at the end. And there was one time I was in Virginia and I'll never forget this. I gave it to this one boy. I stopped the whole thing at the very end. I said, I got to give this book to this boy. I just feel like I, feel like I needed to give it to, to this, this student. And then I was going off to the rental car because I had to go somewhere else, like go to a different school or something. And the students like ran out and they came up and they asked me like other questions. And then the boy came up and he had the book like this. And he kind of was in the back and I said, oh, hey, you know, you're the guy, you're the guy who got the book. And he started crying and he said, mister, why did you give it to me? And I said, there's just something special about you, I think. And I felt like I needed to give it to you. And he started crying, but that's not the, the moral of the story. The moral of the story is all of the other kids started to put their arm around him. And they said, he's new. He just came here two weeks ago and they were holding him. So look, all of this happened because of a book, not the story, but because we were sharing books and he got a book and they were curious about books. So they were asking me questions and they ended up holding this boy similar to the way your, your students held this girl that was sharing about um, you know, a suicide of a family member. Like, I just think there's more to reading books than just reading books. Absolutely. So I just have one last question. Matt, what can we expect from you next after the pandemic is over and you continue to be a father, but also start writing again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we need that from you. So um, like, what, what are you going to be working on? And I just like to say, if you're accepting requests, can we maybe get some early chapter books from you? Um, oh there's gosh. a dearth of early chapter books with male Latinx protagonists written by own voice authors. It's like, it's like there's hardly anything there. And it's killing me as a person who, as a teacher who teaches primarily Mexican students. This is so wild. So I have I have an early reader series that I'm working on and it's called Manny and Sophia. And um, so I'm very excited about this. I just have, I have one of the books done and we're gonna probably go out with them soon. But so that's kind of down the road, but um, my next book is with Karina Lucan who did the book of mistakes and it's called Patchwork. And I'm very excited about Patchwork. First of all, Karina is a genius. Um, I'm so proud to be working with her, but the book is, it's in the vein of love in that there's not one main character, it's many main characters. And we want this to be an opportunity for inclusivity, like you were talking about earlier, but it's kind of challenging the notion that you have to decide who you're going to be at age eight. Cause like so many young people right now, it's like, oh, I'm taking ballet and I'm getting better. I think I'm gonna be a ballerina and now I have to quit all the other sports. I can't concentrate on math as much. I have to do the traveling ballet classes in Arizona. So it's challenging that notion. And I think this comes from a very personal place where one of the vignettes is a boy, you go everywhere with a ball in your hands. We, we see, we see um, basketball, baseball, football, any kind of uh, sport, whatever. 
the game feeds you, it leads you. But, but um, the rhythm you find in sports is also in the rhythm of the poems that you will eventually write because you've always been a poet. So it's kind of like, it's kind of twisting what kids are loving now and showing that they could do something adjacent to that, you know, with that talent. So it's called patchwork. That's, that's great. Again, continuing to set children free. Well, yeah. it was so fun to talk to you, Ariel. It is so good. And, and, and yes, and I, I'm just gonna, my insight and then let Ariel do the last, last question, um, the write out. But the, you said the coolest thing a book can do is be a vehicle for a conversation. And you went over an hour on a conversation about a picture book. And, um, and that's kind of like what I'm learning when I introduce this to graduate students or undergraduates or principals or teachers in professional development, one book launches humanity. So I'm in agreement with Ariel. If you put humanity in the hands of readers, they become more human. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you for having us on this thing because I love, it's what's it called? The right, the, the right, right time. The right time. I was going to say the right stuff, but I was like, that's the wrong right thing. But I love- It's already I been love, taken. I love doing this and thank you for having us and thank you for pairing me with Ariel. I'm so privileged to be able to to, to speak with Ariel this way. Thank you, Matt, so much. You know that I'm a huge fan and I have so much gratitude for um, the work that you do, especially considering the context in which I teach. You're everything to my kids. They were like, you get to do what? <laughs> get to talk to Matt De La Pena tonight? <laughs> so um, just to wrap up everyone, we are going to share the prompt for um, the end of the text. So in Milo Imagines the World, Milo ultimately revises his thinking by reimagining his drawings. Write about a time when you had an aha moment that made you change. Nice. Uh, I can't talk very long because I promised my 21-year-old daughter I wouldn't cry. So <laughs> Matt and Ariel, I think each knowing that each of you is doing the work that you do in the world is always a balm to my heart and my soul. And so seeing you together talking about that work is such a gift to put out in the world as is all the work that both of you do every day. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And then I end with promotion after all of that beauty Listeners, if you have enjoyed spending an hour with Matt and Ariel, uh, you won't want to miss other episodes of The Right Time or other work of the National Writing Project. So if you aren't already, please go to nwp.org, sign up for our newsletter so that you never miss a right time or any of the other work that National Writing Project teachers put out into the world. Thank you, everyone. NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP.